Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro. I want to welcome you to the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. Today's title is Stop Fixing Your Church, Part 2. Last week, I had you listen to uh, Quit Over Functioning out of a chapter from Jerry's book. It's an incredible chapter that actually changed my whole life. And she lays a great uh, foundation for what I want to say today in talking about leadership and the challenge of over-functioning in leadership. And if you quit over-functioning, and uh, it involves raising your level of differentiation in your family, in your church, and ministry uh, by quitting over-functioning. So this was a turning point in my leadership. It actually happened in stages for me. In 1996, when Jerry quit over-functioning in our marriage, in our home, she forced me to confront my underfunctioning in those areas. And then as I began to grow my own emotional maturity, my own differentiation level, I quit over-functioning in the church I was pastoring. I was doing the job of three to four people uh, so that I wouldn't have to have hard conversations and make difficult decisions. And so I, I, I grew in my ability to stop over-functioning as I understood it. I grew in my understanding of it. And then 2006 was my most significant moment uh, when I took seven years to dive into the system of our church, the executive running of the church, uh, and truly quit over-functioning on a leadership level, it unleashed an earthquake into our system, into our church. It was very powerful. It was very wonderful. But not everyone was happy when I changed the system. And the Emotionally Healthy Leader book, with many, which many of you are familiar with, came out as a result of that. And so I consider it this journey of stop fixing my church or quit over functioning was key to me becoming a clear leader. Now, over functioning uh, can be defined as doing for others what they can and should do for themselves, doing for others what they can and should do for themselves. So uh, for most of us, over functioning is second nature. It's generally it's in our bloodstream. It's in our families of origin. It's in our cultures. And it's very difficult to identify uh, because we get rewarded for overfunctioning, we're we're in helping professions as pastors and leaders. We're trying to serve people at work, family, and church, and uh, it's not an accident that we're in this profession. It probably has roots going back. And so, let me ask you a couple of questions as we launch into this theme. Uh, answer with a yes or no. Yes or no. Do I move quickly to advise and fix things lest they fall apart? In my case, yes. Do I have difficulty allowing others to struggle with their own problems? In my case. Yes. Do I find that in the long run, it's simply easier to do things myself? In my case, yes. Do I say yes when asked of me, even if I'm overloaded? Very often, yes. Do I trust others to do as good a job as I can? Mm, not that often. Or do I not trust others to do as good a job as I can? Yeah, that's true. And do I not like asking for help because I don't want to be a burden to other people? Very often, yes. And it's not loving to do these things because ultimately it, it harms people by not honoring their own journey. Uh, if I can put it very simply, over-functioning is, over is not loving well. So let me unpack this. I'm quite excited about this podcast. I've got a lot of notes here that may ramble a bit, but I think it will hold together for you. Uh, I over-functioned uh, for years and not that I'm fully done it, but uh, let me give you some areas where it worked out of my leadership. I overfunctioned to keep people in our church uh, in a way that was inappropriate for a number of years. I, I was afraid that people I had invested in 
uh, especially in leadership, that they would leave and move on to another ministry or church. And so I would, of course, work double to keep them here uh, as if as if I, I know what God's doing. And, and uh, the truth is, some folks, I even got some names written down here, it was so healthy for them to leave our community uh, and move to another one. And of course, I always thought my sermons were the best. And and uh, I had a piece of their development, and not everyone was called to stay at New Life Fellowship Church for decades. And I overfunctioned in trying to hold on to certain people that, especially leaders, that really needed to, for their own development growth and for the kingdom of God to move on. But I overfunctioned. I overfunctioned in buying a building. We bought a building for six and a half million dollars. Uh, I carried the weight of that. It almost uh, killed me. And here's the here's the irony. I was was carrying the weight, riding point. And of course, there was elders and others involved, but it was towards the very, very end. It was a five-year process of buying this building. A fellow emerged in our church, was incredibly gifted uh, with buildings, financially, negotiations, real estate. And he came to me and says, hey, Pete, listen, you've got to focus on what you're good in, you know, preaching, leading the church. Let me just take this off your hands. I will carry it for you. And he was, he was stupendous. He was 10 times better at it than I was. Uh, and then actually ran the whole building for a few years after we bought it. But I remember saying to myself, how stupid, Pete. You had this guy sitting in your midst. You had no idea. So I overfunctioned for years, took a took a, a pound of flesh out of me as well. I overfunctioned for a number of years because I preached too much. You know, I heard people would say to me things like, oh, my gosh, Pete, if, if you know, if you don't preach all the time, you know, people will leave, you know. And I, it, was, it was absurd. People needed to hear other voices. Uh God had other things that he would have me invest my time in besides preparing sermons as well. And I needed to let go. But uh, it took me a very long time to move to a preaching team, and I waited way too long for that. I overfunction in striving to build our church uh, so often. You know, the Lord, it says in Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds a house, uh, you know, we labor in vain who build it. And, uh, you know, Jesus says, I will build my church. But I, I did more than my share of striving to build it for him. And as you know, we're listening to my voice in a similar situation. It's exhausting. I over I overfunctioned in overpastoring people. You know, John twenty one, when Jesus says to Peter, "Feed my sheep," you know, "Feed my sheep, feed my sheep." But because of my genogram, my family history, I took it to an extreme. I overpastored people, and uh, you know, I, I spent my my whole childhood years taking care of my mother. I was what was called parentified. So taking care of people was very natural for me. And so uh, I, I just, I overdid it pastoring uh, people for years. I overfunction in doing people's jobs uh, on our staff or even some key volunteers because I didn't want to have an honest conversation with them that it wasn't working out. I didn't want to fire anybody. So I just did two or three jobs pretty much most of my pastoral life until later and I got clear and finally quit over-functioning. I over-functioned even trying to rush my own spiritual growth. There are seasons God has us in a, a, a tight spot, a dark night of the soul, a valley. Uh, he, he's got us locked in because it's painful. It's, it's, it's uh, difficult. It's the last place you want to be. And I had you know a few different seasons of that. I, list, I listed them here. Uh, on my paper, but I want I wanted to rush and overfunction for God and get me out of here so I can move on to build His ministry in church versus just relaxing in the painful place because God was doing a stupendous work in me and He was actually preparing me so I would be able to enter into what He had for me. You know, after that 
difficult season. So let me give you two examples in scripture uh, of overfunctioning to give you a bit of context. I always find that as I look at leaders in scripture, it helps me place myself. And so I want to give you the example of Moses to start and then Martha secondly. Now, Moses was an overfunctioner. We find, for example, in Exodus 18, we see him uh, in the wilderness. He's got two to three million people and his father-in-law Jethro shows up and his father-in-law and, and, and Moses day and night, it says in scripture, he is, he is giving judgments to people. Everyone is coming to him with their problems. And uh, Jethro shows up and says, his father-in-law says, listen, you've got you've to select capable men from the people and women, trustworthy folks who hate dishonest gain and appoint them over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And, and they could just bring the difficult cases to you. But you know, he needed help to even stop over-functioning in that case. But the real example I, I love of Moses' life of over-functioning is in Numbers chapter 11. And they're about one year into their journey to the promised lands. And now there's been a history over this past year since they came to the Red Sea of blaming Moses for all their problems. And, uh, you know, Exodus 5, they complain to Moses, you made us a stench to Pharaoh. May God judge you. At the Red Sea, they say, what have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? They say to Moses and in Exodus 15, they grumble against him because there's not water. The water is bitter. Uh, when there's no food in the desert in Exodus 16, they grumble against Moses and Aaron. Uh, when there's a water scarcity in Exodus 17, they quarrel with Moses, it says. And then in Exodus 32, they get rid of him as a leader because he's unavailable and uh, with a golden calf. And, and so they're consistently discouraged by discomfort in the desert, complaining, disappointed. Up to now, Moses had handled it pretty well. Each time he'd cry out to God, he was a steady presence. But by Numbers 11, he's fed up. He's reached his breaking point. And it, it says that, in verse 10 of Numbers 11, every, uh, he heard the people of, the, every, of every family wailing. Now imagine there's 600,000 men. Let's assume there's 500,000 families or 400,000 families. That's a lot of crying out against Moses. Now, this time they're, they're more serious than simply complaining about food. It says they've, they've rejected the Lord. They're making very bad choices, very destructive. Moses is exhausted, exasperated. And this is the first time he doesn't go to God, he takes it on. And now he begins to complain to God, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? And he refers to the people as a burden to God. He goes, and he says, God, you, you're their mother who gave them birth. You ought to take them. I can't carry this burden by myself. It's too heavy for me. And he asks, he asks God to kill him. Now, you know, it's, Think about it. I mean, he's seeing these people make bad choices. Now he's over-functioning. He's now carrying it like God himself. And uh, I, I don't know about you, but I sure know what it's like to take on other people's struggles uh, and other people's anxieties. And, you know, what should Moses have done, obviously, is cry out to God, humbly let it go. But what he does, he over-functions. He does for others what they can and should do for themselves. He takes on the burden as if he's God. And then finally, God intervenes. And the Lord says, I'm going to take the spirit that's on you. I'm going to give it to 70 elders to help you carry the burden of the people so you will not have to carry it alone. But Moses even resists that, and he misses God. And the Lord finally says to him, is the Lord's arm too short? You will see whether or not what I say will come true for you. And so, so you know, God basically says to Moses, I'm in charge of the world. You know, relax. So it's a, I, I love it because I, I so relate to Moses of just over carrying things 
not being God. And the second great example in scripture that I've always uh, used as a help in my own leadership is the example of Martha in the story of Mary and Martha in Luke 10, 38 to 42. And uh, most of you know the story that uh, Mary and Martha are sisters and Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha is preparing all the food. And she's distracted, it says, by all the preparations that have to be made. She's worried. She's upset. And she says to Jesus, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. So she's over-serving Jesus. And as a result, she's missing Jesus. And she's bothered. Her prayer is a command to Jesus. Tell her to help me. Uh, when you're over-functioning, our prayers change. We start telling God what to do, just like Moses did in Numbers 11, just like Martha does here, and Jesus gently rebukes her. Now, again, you only have to look at your family of origin to catch some of the roots of perhaps overfunctioning in your life. I know it does for mine. It's, it's no wonder it, it was so challenging for me because really my, 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 my mother had mental illness. My father was not around very much. And, and so my life, and we had, I had four of us, four kids in the family, and I was the youngest. Our job was to take care of my mother. And so imagine, you know, I'm 7, 8, 10, 12 years old, 15 years old. We're taking care of my mother versus the other way around. So is it any wonder I became a pastor? Now I'm taking care of everybody. So it's so deep in my system. And so, you know, my, my mother, I remember when she was alive at, at the age of 86, you know, we'd go out to eat and she would say to me, you don't want to eat that. You know, have hamburgers from White Castle. And I mean, she was still over-functioning and telling me what I should eat and shouldn't eat. And if you have a, a child that's an adult and you're still treating them like you're, like they're children, uh, you're over-functioning because children are meant to grow into adults and become peers. And we're parents of our children. Then as they become adults, we're peers with our children. And then as we get older, they become like our parents and we're their children. They're taking care of us in our, in our old age. And those are healthy developmental tasks. My mother, most like most parents, never moved to that uh, healthy developmental task. Some of you know it's like someone you're helping your child with your homework, but the reality is you're doing most of it. You're over-engaged in their social life, their future careers, their friendships, their relationships. Uh, I remember when my father uh, grew quite sick, and he was sick really three years before he died. And I was alone caring for him and my mom. Uh, my other three siblings were not living uh, nearby, and, and uh, I remember calling them because I was over-functioning. And now it was taking me down, and and it, just, it just seemed like, as far as they were concerned, I was the one in the best situation to take care of him. Uh, and I remember I realized, oh, this is not healthy. And so part of my work was calling them all up and had a family meeting and basically said, uh, no, we need to share the load here and figure out how we can spread it out, which we did. And it was wonderful the next final couple of years. Uh, and again, you know what it's like to, to run an event uh, and we've done a lot of hospitality over the years. And, you know, it's like to prepare your house, get it ready, do the food, clean up, set up, call the people, uh, be social. And you don't want to overburden anybody. Um, but you realize I'm just, I don't want to even do this anymore because it's so much. And so often we rescue people because of our own unresolved pain. And the reason often we're rescuing others and overdoing it and fixing is because it's meeting some unmet need in us, some identity uh, of needing to be needed. Uh, and so it gets complicated. So let me, let me motivate you with the following four realities, because they've really helped me over the years. 
And uh, I know Jerry mentioned them last week, but I want to mention them again and expound them just a little bit. Overfunctioning number one, when you do that, we perpetuate immaturity in people. Uh, we perpetuate immaturity. I mean, Moses uh, mistakenly believed his self-sacrifice was serving the people. He actually became the bottleneck to his, the people's growth and maturity, uh, especially in that Numbers chapter 11, actually in Exodus 18 as well. And um, he wasn't helping them. Uh, you know what? I perpetuated immaturity in our people for years as well. And that's why I moved, as I moved into this emotionally healthy uh, leadership and spirituality, emotionally healthy discipleship journey, one of my highest priorities was that people would cultivate their own relationship with Jesus. I began to introduce to the church things like the daily office and a rule of life where people would develop a, a rule of life, a structure uh, out of which they're going to follow Jesus, it became part of our membership course and uh, part of our leadership development. But I made a big shift from relying on my teaching and preaching and classes to getting people to spend time with Jesus themselves and make their number one priority following Jesus. Even membership shifted, where it was a healthy give and take. What can you expect? Uh, and what are your responsibilities? And, and and probably the biggest area, however, that I stopped perpetuating immaturity uh, was by being honest, especially in giving honest feedback and in job performance evaluations. Uh, I did not confront people for years. I, I lied in my yearly reviews with people. Uh, I covered up for folks. Uh, I would do their jobs uh, on the sly, uh, of course, unconsciously, and uh, because I didn't want to have to confront them and possibly let them go. And uh, if you know the story of, a, and I had a friend who who um, raised these little chickens, you know, and uh, and he talked about how you uh, in an egg, you help a chicken hatch, you will kill it because it's in the very struggle of that chicken hatching that certain things happen in its metabolisms and its body that enables them to survive once they're um, out of that egg. And I've, I've read the same thing about butterflies. And so that people moving through struggles, getting healthy feedback, sometimes actually being let go from a job uh, or a role, or even as a volunteer, getting honest feedback, even though it's hard and painful, it is a gift uh, and enables them to mature. And so what happens is when we overfunction, we interfere with a process that's essential for folks' growth. I did it for years. One of the guidelines we have for our uh, tables in the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship courses for that we train table leaders in is that no fixing, saving, or setting other people straight. We, we, that's not our job. That's the Holy Spirit's job. And so we want to be careful not to over-function for people in their own journey with Jesus. You know, it's, it's rightly been said that you can't have an underfunctioner without an overfunctioner. You can't have an underfunctioner without an overfunctioner. And uh, I like what Ed Friedman, who, who wrote this great book, he was a rabbi uh, who took family systems theory and, and the concept of underfunctioning, overfunctioning that came out of Murray Bowen, uh, you know, a generation earlier. And as a rabbi, he wrote about it in the dynamics of churches and synagogues. And it's a great book, Generation to Generation. I recommend it. But he describes the relational impact, the negative relational impact of overfunctioning. Here's what he says. When one overfunctions in another person's space, it causes disintegration of the other's being. That when we overfunction in another space, he writes, it, call, it can cause disintegration of the other's being. 
I like the word disintegration because it refers to inhibiting the maturing of this person's God-given sense of self. Overfunctioners, overfunctioners actually believe they know what's best for everyone. And in doing so, they actually they invade and limit their development. So that's number one. Overfunctioning uh, perpetuates immaturity. Number two, it, it pre, overfunctioning prevents us from focusing on God's unique call for our lives. Jesus said, I've completed the work that you've given me to do. Uh, unlike Jesus, however, uh, we can get sidetracked from our own life direction by overfocusing on other people. And uh, we overfocus on others and we lose sight of what God's given us to do. Uh, this past Sunday is so interesting. Um, you know, we're in, our, we're in our sixth year of not being the lead pastor at New Life. And I'm still there uh, in a role, but very much behind the scenes. And I just sat there on Sunday and I noticed a number of people getting up front who uh, who are new. Uh, and I thought, you know, if I was still leading this church, and I led it for 26 years, I said so many people would not have had an opportunity to grow and develop. I needed to get out of that space, not over-function, so others could have an opportunity to grow and build and uh, get on my shoulders and take the church beyond where I ever took it. And, uh, you know, I find myself now, and I feel like I'm in the greatest growing season of my life, learning studying scripture, hearing God, researching. I mean, the, the this podcast wouldn't exist if I hadn't made the transition. The Emotionally Healthy Discipleship course around the world wouldn't exist as we know it. I've had time to interact with churches of, of you know, all stripes and, you know, types of churches around North America and the world, and just even writing and training. I'm looking forward to, you know, to, to writing in the future and mentoring young pastors. And uh, it's just, I feel like so much has opened up for me as I actually let go uh, at New Life Fellowship. So uh, overfunctioning, it does prevent us from focusing and hearing what God's uniquely called us to do as well. Thirdly, overfunctioning erodes our spiritual life. It erodes our spiritual life. And we overwork because we want to keep things from falling apart. And so often what happens is our time with God gets compromised. And and the way overfunctioning separates us from God is that you know, the calling of the Christian life, the calling of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is, is a constant surrendering our will to his will. It's a letting go of us controlling and grasping and surrendering to what he's doing. And uh, we cross the line into trying to run the world for God, which is very dangerous territory. We end up in the very rebellion of, of our first parents, and, and we don't allow God to, to be God. Really, it erodes our Christian life because the whole Christian life, I like to say, is it's just surrendering. That's why, and letting go and saying yes to God. Uh, that's why Sabbath is a letting go, right? It's, I'm not going to overfunction. I'm, I'm going to stop. I'm going to rest. I'm going to delight in God. I'm not going to produce and work. Uh, and when I die, the world's going to do just fine without me. Uh, no need to overfunction. God says, I got it. That's why Sabbath is such a key spiritual formation, discipline, and practice. It's up there with prayer and Bible study. Uh, so if you've not begun to do Sabbath, see it as, a, as an invitation from God to quit overfunctioning and let God build his kingdom uh, his way. And, and and fourthly, and finally, in a, a last uh, deadly result of overfunctioning is it destroys communities. 
Uh, it destroys communities and churches. Again, look at Moses, look at Martha, look at the relationship tensions that were going on there as, as a result of Moses and Martha overfunctioning. They give us a visual picture of the negative impact on a community, whether it's a church, whether it's a workplace, whether it's a school, whether it's a family, because it eventually results in some people being resentful, some people being frustrated, and a lot of conflict uh, because it's not the way God intended it to be. So the question I have for you is what might be one area where God's inviting you to quit over-functioning in your leadership? Uh, you know, what's one area? Can, can you think of one in your leadership where God says, you know what, you really need to let this go, or you need to have a difficult conversation. You need to actually delegate this. You, you need to make a move here of you carrying this whole thing. So you're saying, okay, I got it, but how do I do it? How do I quit over-functioning? How do I stop fixing the church? And the answer is with great difficulty. Now, I just wrote down three things here, and I'll close with this, that I did and I'm continuing to do. And perhaps one of these three things may help you. The first is do your inner work with God and yourself. Do your inner work with God and yourself. What I mean by that is, of course, with human beings, this is impossible, but not with God. If you're like me, I was a lifelong overfunctioner on a very high level. And so it's been a very it's been a long process with some serious moments of growth uh, for me to quit over functioning, because the issue here in this inner work is differentiation. It's it's going back to your family of origin. It's key. Uh, remember, we all belong to three families. We have a family of origin we grew up in. We've got our present family, whether we're single or married, and then we have the church family, the ministry family, and they're all three of those families are are connected. And the work we do on our family of origin of overfunctioning, that inner work, that painful work, that looking at it very honestly, growing into significant self-awareness, uh, is going to translate and impact the way we operate in our, whether we're married or single, in our close relationships, and as well as in the church. Overfunctioning is a manifestation of anxiety. I mean, what do you do with your anxiety? And very often, uh, we overfunction. We, we start moving around trying to control people's lives. And it as Ed Friedman has written, it, it destroys the spiritual quality of the overfunctioning. It's, and for Ed, Ed Friedman says this, and I think it's a great statement. The issue for a sports team coach is not how they handle the players, but themselves. Think about that. The issue for a sports team coach is not how they handle the players, but themselves. And the same thing applies for a leader of a church, a ministry, a marketplace corporation. The issue is how you handle yourself, uh, not those around you first. So that's number one. Do that inner work with God and yourself. Number two is seek out uh, mature spiritual discernment and wisdom uh, from others. The Good Samaritan, when he picked up that guy on the side of the road in Luke, it's so interesting. He he took time to pay his bill. You know, he got him off the road. He brought him to the inn. But he didn't, like, overfunction for the guy either. And so the whole question of, is this appropriate or not? And uh, I, I often, I, I need perspective from mature other people, mentors, counselors, spiritual directors. Uh, you know, when I'm afraid things fall apart, for example, it's not uncommon for a friend to have said to me or a mentor, hey, you know what, Pete? Maybe that's what God wants, that it does fall apart. And so... Others can help me along the way guard my own heart so that even if I stop over-functioning, 
it's it's coming out of a deep heart of love. It's not coming from, you know what, do it yourself, grow up in a place of anger and resentment. That's not healthy either. So it's by, I got to do my own inner work. I want to get some wise counsel. And thirdly, and finally, is you just have to stand firm. Because as you quit over-functioning, you've got to prepare for chaos because you are unleashing a bit of an earthquake. You're changing a system uh, for good. Uh, but it's a change, and you're going to have some pushback. Uh, and that's why it gets us to the crux and the core of the gospel that our God sits on the throne in heaven. He loves the world so much he gave his only son to die for us. And you can rest assured, God will catch you, and God will catch those who you're leading, and uh, that we can trust him. So listen, our mission is to transform the church through the multiplication of deeply changed leaders and disciples. That's what we're doing here at Emotionally Healthy Leadership uh, in this podcast. So I want to invite you to join us. Uh, You may want to read The Emotionally Healthy Leader. If you've not, go to emotionallyhealthy.org, visit our website, learn about uh, you know, the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship course. Uh, we're doing these trainings every couple of months called Master the Launch of the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship course. Join us, check it out, get involved. And uh, I pray that God will give you the grace to lead his way. For as he said so clearly, unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who built it. Psalm 127. It's a great text. God bless you, everybody. Great to be with you. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. <laughs>